0: We considered a very important paragraph last week and today we pick up uh, the completion of chapter 10. We'll start reading in a moment in verse 26. So Hebrews 10, 26. As we've worked our way through the book of Hebrews this year, we have seen two primary things highlighted again and again. First and most importantly, we've seen that the writer of Hebrews highlights this truth. Jesus is a great Savior. Jesus is a great Savior. He is better in every way than the old covenant. He inaugurates a new way, a way that he he describes as being a new covenant in his own blood. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that we worship God through the blood, not of bulls and goats, but of the precious blood of our eternal Savior. So, his way is the way of a new birth, not, not a, a new birth uh, of this body, of this flesh, but a spiritual birth. He transforms, Jesus does, the inner man, and he gives him a new heart, the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. I will put a new heart within them, and I will do this by my Spirit. So the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is a reminder of the fulfillment of the Lord's promise of His coming Spirit, and His Spirit has come to dwell among men and to live within them. So the ministry of the Spirit is different in the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. You can't even begin to compare the work of the Spirit, Old Covenant and New Covenant. It's another sermon for another day. But what the Old Covenant could not do, the New Covenant has done. The Old Covenant could make a man look like a follower of God, it could polish the outside, it could tell a man what to do, what not to do, how to look, how to sound. But the true follower is not a man who's just changed outwardly. The true follower is the one who has the law of God written on his heart, this new heart. A man is born again. He must be born again. So Jesus did not come to change the outside of men. If you find yourself as a moralist, you're impressed with people who do good things well, I'm not suggesting that's a bad idea, but I am suggesting you look a little deeper. I'm, I'm far more interested in people who are good, not just do good, because you can do good and go to hell, because there's plenty of people who are opting to do good in place of somehow being born again. So don't be moral if that's your end game, being moral. Instead, be moral because Christ has transformed you and you love Christ who is moral. And now you want to submit to him and follow him and identify with him and cling to him. I always use the illustration of wearing uh, athletic stuff. If you're wearing a, uh, a hat or a shirt, James Sanders used to wear ugly Mississippi State clothes when he worked for us. He's wearing a purple, I mean a maroon shirt this morning. We put him in the road, by the way, for that kind of behavior. People wear these things, and they, and they want to identify with it. They want you to know, but you wouldn't know. I mean, I know there's, this room is filled with people who are loyal to certain things. It doesn't have to be athletics. It can be all kinds of things. You're loyal to, you know, Fruit Loops, you know, Captain Crunch. I don't know that unless you're wearing a Captain Crunch shirt and wearing a Captain Crunch hat. I don't know these things until they come out of you and you begin to identify in certain ways, in certain behaviors, certain words. That's the, way we, that's the way we know what people believe on the inside. But it is a false thing to assume that somehow, because a person wears a hat or wears a shirt or says certain words, has the secret handshake, that somehow those people have actually been transformed. And it's particularly so with Christ. So what we've seen in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is a great Savior and he's better in every way than the old covenant. Therefore, don't retreat to the old covenant because that that thing was broken was broken in the sense that it could not make a man new it was an outside pressure to conform a man to to recognize his sin and it did that beautifully let us celebrate the old covenant for the value that it brings to our hearts and for the purposes for which god intended it but the true follower of christ is the one who understands his need for mercy Jesus tells us this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I'm not interested in your outward religion. I'm interested in the fact that inside you're a man of mercy. You're a man of forgiveness. A man who's received forgiveness and gives forgiveness. A man who's received mercy and a man who gives mercy. A man who's received patience and gives patience. A man who's been transformed by a new heart. This is the nature of Christ. So we see that beautifully in the book of Hebrews. In fact, perhaps no book in the New Testament is comparable to Hebrews in that regard. But there is a second thing, and this is highlighted in our passage we're going to read this morning, and that is that we must hold fast to Jesus. We find again and again in the book of Hebrews the words persevere or endurance. We must hold fast. We've learned in the book of Hebrews that unbelief, refusing to hold fast to Jesus, is in fact deadly. Deadly. Unbelief will send you to hell. He warns against unbelief in chapter 2. He does it again in chapter 4. He does it again in chapter 6. And now, in a great flourish, He's going to do it again in chapter 10. It is as if he says, Jesus is great, don't you dare let go. Jesus is great, don't you dare run to some surrogate. Jesus is great, be careful that you don't lessen your grip on Jesus. I've often compared it to parenting teenagers. Well, first of all, there's nothing that's comparable to parenting teenagers, but uh, it's scary, right? It's scary, particularly when you let them go with the car for the first or second or the 23rd time. You give them the keys, and you say, now, I want you to go out there, and I want you to have a good time. I want you to remember who you are. And don't forget Don't forget who you are. Now when I tell my children, don't forget who you are, am I suggesting that they're not who they are? On the contrary. I'm reminding them with a bit of a veiled threat. Don't forget who you are. I'm reminding them that I expect them to honor the one whose name they carry which happens to be mine and their mother's. It's important that they not forget who they are. And I am in no way suggesting that they're not who they are. I am in fact reinforcing who they are by warning them not to forget. So some people look at the book of Hebrews and they say, well, you know, when the book of Hebrews warns against not holding fast or warns against losing your grip on Jesus, or to use phraseology we'd be more familiar with, when the book of Hebrews seems to imply that you can lose your salvation. Because after all, why bring it up if it's not possible? If it's not possible? Well, that, that forgets what he's doing he's bringing it up, not because it's possible, but because he wants to drill into his people, don't forget who you are. Because if, you, if somehow, some way, you don't f- remember who you are, it is more dangerous than you can ever calculate. It is more harmful out there than you know. And your lack of understanding, if your inexperience, your lack of wisdom... You're 17. You don't know what I know. You can't know what I know. So since you don't, let me just tell you, stay away from it. Does that mean we don't love them? Does that mean that we want them to get into trouble? On the contrary, it means we don't. And we're trying to use warning as a way to keep them away from such things. We're going to read in just a minute, one of the most frightening warning passages in the Bible. And there are people who look at that passage and say, that means you can be saved and then not. And if I do some heinous thing, pick it, you know, murder somebody, some great, terrible thing, indeed it is, many other things we could list. If I do some terrible thing, that I will lose my salvation and that I will go to hell. And their proof text for that line of thinking is Hebrews 10, verse 26 and following. And we're about to read that. So what is he doing? He's telling us we are to hold fast, to persevere. And he's using this passage to remind us what he's just told us, what we said a week ago. We are to draw near, hold fast, and help other people hold fast. Draw near, hold fast, and help other people hold fast. Draw near, hold fast, and help other people do the same thing. That's the purpose of your life. That's what you're about. Draw near, hang on, and help other people hang on. That's what you do. That's why we come to church, to help other people hang on. We said it last week. You're here to help others. You're not here for you. You're here to help others. We're here because we know that we're, we're all weak, every one of us. We're weak. Now, this may be the week I'm not so weak, so this is the week I can be a giver. Well, next week I may be really weak and I need to be a taker or I need to be a receiver. But the point is, I never know, do I? So I need a habit of coming together to help. And some days I think I'm kind of marginally weak. You know, I'm kind of in the middle of the pack. I'm not a one, I'm not a 10, I'm a five. So depending on who to run to, I run into a seven, I need a little. I run into a three, I give a little. You feel it? That's why we come to church. That's why we come to church all the time. That's why we come to church regularly. Why? Because you never know. You never know what kind of shape you're going to be in. You never know what kind of shape they're going to be in. You don't know who needs you and who doesn't. And you don't know when you're even helping them. Just the very fact that you're here. Just the very fact that you call their name. Call me Greg. My name's not Craig. Call their name. Call it right. Smile. Shake hands. Okay, don't shake hands. Fifth bump. Whatever. But tell them you love them. Tell them you care about them. Tell them you're glad to see them. Pay attention to people's lives. Draw near, hang on, and help other people hang on. That was last week. This week, we're going to read a different passage. So let's read, beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. By the way, it says that in the book of Numbers. For instance, if a person is caught in adultery, the book of Numbers says you stone them. And the person who accuses them throws the first rock. That's why in the New Testament, the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, let he who is without sin throw the first rock. Well, that's a different game, isn't it? You're not just accusing. You're acknowledging that you are perfect. We see nobody can pick up the rock then. You don't qualify to be a rock thrower. And you still don't, friend. So, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls it was a long section of scripture and i've Opted to group it all together for our study this morning so that we can continue to move along in the book of Hebrews. Just want to mention three things. Number one, you can write these down if you like. Number one, do not ignore the Lord's warning. Do not ignore the Lord's warning. Secondly, we see beginning in verse 32, we are not to ignore, do not ignore your past victories. Don't ignore the Lord's warning and don't ignore your past victories. And then thirdly, in verse 35, be confident of your reward. Be confident of your reward. So if you like an outline, there's one. Let's uh, begin to look at this. First of all, he says from the outset in verse 26 and following, do not ignore the Lord's warning. He says something that's controversial to some people. He says it in a way that's controversial. And I'll explain that and then make the point. Verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, if you read that verse out of context, snatch it away and just say, well, look, this verse says A, then you're going to say, well, that verse says that you can be unsaved, that because of a particular Sin or group of sins, you are unsaved or because of a particular sin, or, remed- or or if you will, repetition of sins, then you are in danger of hell. That's what that verse says, some people say. But that's not what that verse says at all. You'll note, Uh, The key phrase here is the word deliberately. How do I know that's the key phrase or the key word? Because in the Greek of the New Testament, that's the very first word in the sentence. Deliberately. Deliberately. Now, you know, in English, we do the same thing. If we want to highlight something, we have a tendency to move it forward in the sentence. For instance, when your mother is exasperated with you, what is the first word out of her mouth? Your name, right? Greg, she's going to yell your name. Why? Because the emphasis here is on you, buddy. You. Things are about to get real. going to get real on your head. And so the first word that we're going to deal with is you, your name. Same, worth, same principle here, verse 26, deliberately sinning. Now you say, well, you know, the Bible says deliberately sinning. <laughs> well, okay, let's tease that out a minute. Is there a sin in your life where you have not been deliberate? Have you ever not deliberately sinned? Have you ever like accidentally sinned? Well, let me, let me be the first to inform you. No, you haven't. You haven't accidentally sinned. You've done exactly what's inside your heart. You've done exactly what's inside your your conscience. You've done exactly what's inside your mind. You said it because you thought it. Because you felt it. You did it because you thought it, because you felt it. You you you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You you deliberately sin. You do. And the notion that you don't is a denial of the Bible. The Psalms tell us, David praying again and again, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, when I stopped confessing my sin, my bones wasted away. When I denied my sin, when I ignored my sin, my bones waste away. It is sorrowful. It is painful. It is, it is real. There's real pathological issues in a person's life when they deny their sinfulness. There is discouragement and depression. There's all kinds of anxiety. There's all kinds of guilt and shame. And those things begin to boil, bubble, as it were, in a cauldron of our own soul because we are denying our sin. But when we confess our sin, knowing God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, then we feel release. We sense the Lord's liberty. We just sang about it a moment ago. We, we know the Lord has forgiven us and we are restored to joy and life. This is what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the fact that somehow you have some uh, non-deliberate sins, and that, but if you actually do something intentionally, that, that somehow you're in danger of hell. It's not at all what he's talking about. Frankly, every sin you ever commit is deliberate. So what is he talking about? He's talking about Sinning deliberately without regard to the consequences, without regard to confession, without regard to repentance. Sinning deliberately. So if we go on sinning deliberately, regularly, without consequence, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if if the way to solve your sinfulness is forgiveness, but you... Don't seek forgiveness, don't care about forgiveness, don't have any regard for forgiveness, don't think you need forgiveness. You're sinning deliberately, you're sinning indiscriminately, you're sinning without repentance, you're sinning without understanding. In other words, you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian. If you were one of these kinds of sinners, then there is no longer a sacrifice for sins because. The only sacrifice for that is Jesus, whom you reject. There's a narrative in all these uh, spy movies or these uh, ancient Cold War movies uh, that there's this sort of dread disease or dread problem. And this mad scientist is somewhere in a laboratory. And he's come up with this great pestilence and so forth, some gas, nerve agent, whatever. And he's also got an antidote. You're familiar with this? movie narrative. has got an antidote. And so they're going to release this great pestilence on society, and then, but there's this antidote. And nobody can resist this pestilence, whatever it is. It's going to destroy the world or destroy some city or nation or whatever, but this mad scientist has got the antidote. Well, if you play that out, it's kind of what he's talking about. There's a problem, and it's going to kill the whole world. there's only one antidote. It turns out the antidote is the blood of Christ. It's the only antidote. But if you reject the antidote, there's no hope. If you turn away from Jesus, there's no hope. There's no antidote. Because the only antidote You've turned away from. So that's his argument. Verse 29: Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know, that's the way it is in Numbers. In the Old Covenant, you die without mercy if you commit sin against the law. If that's the way it is in the Old Covenant, How much, verse 30, rather rather verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God and has profaned not the old covenant, but the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. And he quotes here uh, from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, 32. Deuteronomy 32 is Moses' song. Not all the psalms are in the book of psalms. It turns out the very first psalm in the Bible is in Deuteronomy 32. It's Moses' psalm. And there two phrases are now quoted, vengeance is mine I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Now you remember the context of Deuteronomy 32. Moses is going to die in Deuteronomy 34. He's going to turn he's already turned it over to Joshua. And so he's re established the covenant. He's reestablished the law with the people. Remember their parents got the law 40 years ago in Exodus 20 at Sinai. But now their parents have all died in the wilderness because they were unbelievers. So now their kids are adults. And so Moses is challenging the kids, now adults. And he's saying, when you go into the promised land, you're going to get all of these blessings. Wells you did not dig, houses you did not build, livestock you did not raise, cities you did not... uh, uh, put together, none of those things. You're going to get all those things. God's going to give you all those things, but you're not going to remember God. You're going to forget God. You're going to disobey God. And when you do, you remember this. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord will judge you. For your disobedience. Moses is warning the people of God. You're about to go into the promised land. And you're about to get all kinds of blessings. Don't ignore the Lord's warning. Don't ignore. Don't don't go with all those other people. Don't act like all those people. He concludes verse 31. Our paragraph here. He quotes... From Isaiah 33, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Indeed it is. So don't ignore the Lord's warning. That's the first thing he says. He wants to put the fear of God literally into his people. And we do well to hear that same admonition, exhortation for our own lives. Don't ignore the Lord's warning. But he doesn't stop there. He continues, verse 32 and following, don't ignore your past victories. Don't ignore the fact that you are not one who should fall into that trap. But recall, notice that conjunction, verse 32, but, 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 I've told you about the Lord's warnings, but, but friends, remember this, recall, he says, remember, but remember The former days, when after you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, you remember when you had that experience and that experience and you hang in there, you held in there? You remember that? You remember when you held fast? You remember when you had that bad experience or that difficult experience? You remember when you had that persecution? You felt that sorrow, felt that difficulty? You experienced this or that? And he's going to give us an illustration here in a minute. It's very significant. You remember those things? You remember those hard times you had following Jesus? But you held on. Don't ignore your past victories. This is not your first rodeo. This is not your first challenge. This is not your first difficulty. This is not the first time it's been hard. Don't ignore yesterday's victories. You know what to do. Sometimes, verse 33, being public's, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Think about that. Sometimes it was directly aimed at you. Sometimes the hardship was yours. And sometimes it was because you were identifying with people who had their own hardships. Now the implication here is not that they, you know, they they couldn't pay their mortgage. The implication here is not that they 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 had some difficulty in their life uh, that that was just like regular stuff, some dread disease. It's not to suggest dread disease is, is not hard, but that's not the specific kind of trouble he's illustrating with. Instead, he's, he's thinking about pressure from outside, people to, 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 to mock you, people to pressure you to leave behind Jesus, to conform to worldliness or to conform to, to some sort of extracurricular peer pressure extracurricular behavior let's do this let's do that let's leave behind this and that so forth so he says sometimes verse 33 you were publicly exposed to reproach people mocked you people ridiculed you people uh, hurt you and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated for verse 34 you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I have underlined in my Bible verse 34. I think it is one of the most significant verses in the Bible. I I say that without any hyperbole whatsoever. Hebrews 10 34 is one of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. Read it again. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Well listen, let's assume for the sake of conversation that, uh, you know, some, some guy that you know is in prison. He's a Christian, and let's say he's in prison for, for being a Christian. He's in prison. And you're a Christian, but you're not in prison. But they don't really know who you are, whoever they are, you know, the authorities or the, the gendarmes, they don't know who you are. But you go to visit the guy in the prison. And the minute you come, they know who you are so the the temptation is to say well if 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 my friend is in prison i can't go to help him i can't go to bless him i can't go to encourage him to hold fast i can't be the church to my friend in prison because that's going to be dangerous to me but do you realize what they did they went anyway You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Here's what's going to happen, friend. When you go to visit your friend in prison, they're going to know who you are, and now they're going to come to your house, and they're going to get your family. I'll tell you, there's not a person in this room who's ever had that experience. But the writer of Hebrews is writing to people who had it a lot tougher than any of us. And he said to every one of them, draw near and hang on. And spend the rest of your life helping others to do the same. Don't forget, if you leave Jesus, there's not a plan B. And don't forget, this is not the first time it's ever been hard. So he concludes. Thirdly, be confident of your reward. Notice how he phrases it. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now listen, it's it's vogue today to bash the notion of rewards. I've said this before as your pastor, and I will say it till I die. If there is no reward, count me out. Listen, if there is no eternal life, if there is no eternal joy, if there is no absence of dying and sorrow, if, if all of that is a lie and this is a shell game, then count me out. Listen, I, I, I don't have time. I, I've, I, I've got a few years left and I just need to start conquering things, you know? If, if, the, if Jesus is a lie, if heaven is a lie, if eternal life is a lie, if rewards Are lies, then you got something I want. If all we have is live until we die and then it's over, then I don't have much time left. I got to get busy. I've been spinning my wheels, denying myself, sacrificing, going to visit people in prison so they can come get my couch or my children or my wife. I've been sacrificing for nothing because the truth is, some would say, there is no eternal life. There are no rewards. Well, if there are no rewards, count me out. But there are rewards, friend. So be confident of your reward. That's his point. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence because it has a great reward. It does. It turns out it's not a lie. It's the truth. It's really the truth. If you sacrifice in this life, if you serve other people, if you help people, if you're generous with your money in this life, (coughs) I talk about money, I get choked up. (coughs) When you're generous with your money in this life, there is a reward. There is. Now, the reverse of that has to be true also. If you're not sacrificial in this life, if you're not kind, if you're not giving, if you're not taking care of people, who are hurt, lonely, downcast, suffering, in prison. If you're not doing that, if you're just living for self, you know, going about your merry way and claiming you got a relationship with Jesus, but it doesn't really change your life and it doesn't really help you to help other people hold fast. It doesn't change you, it doesn't drive you to church, it doesn't drive you to care for other people, pay attention to other people, pray for other people. If you're just a slug, Well, friend, you may get to heaven. I'm no judge of that. You may get there. I don't know. But your reward cabinet is going to be a little bare. Oh, you may get in, and that's a reward, certainly. Praise God. But... I'm, I'm, I'll tell you, friend, I pay attention to the fact that there are rewards for right living. It matters. It matters to every person in this room. If I do the right thing, it matters. And if you do the right thing, it matters. But it matters more than just this life. It matters in the life to come. I don't know how. I don't know the specifics of that. Neither is you. People who tell you they do write books. They don't know any more than you do. Don't buy their books. But here's what we do know. You have need, he says in verse 36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Because that's who we are. We're people who believe promises about the future that have not yet come true. And therefore we are mocked because we believe stuff that is unseen. He quotes now from Habakkuk chapter 2, one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. That particular verse, Habakkuk 2, 4, is quoted in the New Testament more than six times. The righteous shall live by faith. Don't shrink back. Live by faith. Hang on. Believe in the future believe in the future believe in the future believe in the future believe in the coming of Jesus believe in the promise of God believe that one day the one who comes on that white horse is going to come for you and he's going to put it all he's going to put it all to end he's going to end it all believe in that but if he shrinks back notice again he just can't quit saying this Verse 38, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's exhorting. We are not like that. That's not who we are. That's not who we aspire to be. We have come to Jesus. He is our refuge, He is our rock. So, though the winds howl around us, and though people everywhere are afraid, we draw near and we hold fast. I can't stop the wind, but I can hold on to the one. Who is never moved no matter how strong the wind is in fact when he's ready he just tells the wind to stop who is this Who commands even the sea and the wind. He is a great Savior. And he is our Savior. Let us not go on sinning. Let us not shrink back. Let us look forward with confidence to our reward. Pray with me. Father, so many difficulties in this life. Personally, we know a few. And beyond personally, Father, we know a lot of other people who've had a lot more. There is no end to difficulty in this life. But I thank you that you're the God who is greater than all our sorrow, greater than all our suffering, greater than all our persecution, greater than all our loneliness, greater than all our fears. Let us not shrink back, but let us hold on with confidence to our great reward, the reward of life eternal, the reward of blessings, beyond compare the reward of mercy and forgiveness draw near to god he will draw near to you thank you for that promise we cling to it this morning with thanksgiving in christ's name we pray amen